month ago I started a sermon series which will last for another five months or so, Prayer, Conversations with God. We've looked at, we'll be looking at the, the Gospel of Luke. We have been looking at the first chapter of Luke for the last four weeks, conversations that God had with Zechariah and Mary, conversations with Elizabeth and Mary, God involved in each of those conversations, God revealing himself, guiding and directing and giving instructions to people, setting in motion that which we are celebrating tonight, the birth of Christ. Tonight's conversation is perhaps one of the most remarkable ones. And if you want to join me in Luke chapter 2, I'll begin reading with verse 1. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You know what the Greek word for great is? Mega. Mega joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. What is one word that you would use to describe that story? Just one word. 
to describe the story I just read? Joy. Joy? Incredible. Holy. Crazy. One more? Miracle. All of that and more is true. The word that came to me this week, though, was incongruous. Incongruous. Which means not in harmony or in keeping with the surroundings or other aspects of something. In other words, two things that just don't seem to go together. Incongruous. And it seemed to me as I was reading and pondering this story this week that that was a really good word to use to describe this story. After looking at this nativity story, I realized how many details were like that. Two things thrown together that just didn't make sense. Tonight I want to focus on two, maybe three of them. First is the incongruity of glorious angels consorting with lowly shepherds. <laughs> Heavenly hosts filling the sky with their words and their songs and smelly shepherds and bleeding sheep. Think about that for a moment. Who are angels? Perhaps first and foremost in this first opening chapter of, of Luke, angels are God's messengers. You know how important it is, what an awesome job it is to take the words of God and tell it to somebody else. And that's the angels perhaps primary job to be God's messengers. And uh, let's see, there's, they're, they're also called ministering spirits. To those who are being saved. Coming alongside people who need encouragement perhaps. Or need direction. And guiding their lives. Ministering spirits. Another vision we see of angels. Are angels around the throne in heaven. Singing God's praises without ceasing. Imagine seeing the face of God. Non-stop for eternity. They're so awesome, as a matter of fact, that um, they, they just seem to terrify everybody that they talk to, don't they? Angels show up, and the first thing they have to say is, don't be afraid. <laughs> and on the other hand, there's these shepherds. We, we have this vision of shepherds that are probably... Um, Formed by watching children's Christmas pageants year after year. Those cute, adorable little kids dressed up in their Bible time costumes with a, a staff in their hand. Aren't those shepherds cute? But in reality, shepherds were at the, about the bottom of the social ladder in Judea at that time. Looked down on, some commentators even say despised because of their inability to be able to maintain ritual purity. Their inability to be able to worship the way God instructed his people to worship. Because as any farmer knows, there's no day off. There's no Sabbath. And when you're out there in the shields being so many things to this herd of sheep, there's really no cleanliness. And so because of that, even though these shepherds in particular might have been 
taking care of lambs who would one day be sacrificed in the holy temple in Jerusalem just seven miles away. For the moment, they were as low as you could get in Jewish society. So here we have this incongruity of the highest heaven meeting the lowliest, lowliest earth. A second thing that I found incongruous was uh, in verse 11, the way the angels describe this baby who's going to be born. There are three words in particular that are used. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. How do you like to have that on your name tag? <laughs> Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And the thing that's incongruous with that is that where is he laid as soon as he is born? In a feeding trough. In a stinky stable. Savior. Savior is one who saves anybody from anything. In particular, this Savior is going to be a Savior who will save us from our sins. Messiah means an anointed one. The, the Greek version of that word is Christ, the anointed one. And throughout history, Israel's history and the human race's history, there had been those who had been anointed by God for a special purpose. Noah, anointed by God, called by God to save his family and restart the planet. Abram called to leave his people and go to a, a place that he didn't know where he and his offspring would become a mighty nation, more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Moses, anointed by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. David, the shepherd boy, called to be the second king of Israel. So Jesus is going to be one in this illustrious line of people who were anointed and called by God. And then the third word, Lord. The word used here is the word that Luke will use over and over and over again throughout his gospel to indicate that Jesus wasn't just a master, an important teacher, but Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was God himself. Savior, Messiah, Lord. This unique merging of these roles where God himself would become the Messiah, the anointed one. God himself would become the savior of his sinful people. This is a completely new perspective on God's plan of salvation. And, and a powerful indicator of the kind of Messiah that Jesus would end up being. One who would be laid in a feeding trough, a manger when he was born, is going to become the kind of Messiah that is a servant. A humble man who would die on a cross. Why do you suppose there are these incongruities in this chapter, in this story? I wonder if the people of Jesus' time were just as steeped in their false expectations of who the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a powerful military leader. You know, that's what they thought. But I wonder if they were just as steeped in those false expectations as we are steeped in this sentimental story of Jesus' birth with the little children up here dressed as shepherds and angels. Maybe it's time for us to 
wake up and see God in his plan as it really is. And maybe that's why there are these incongruities to shock us into realizing that things may not be as we thought. From the very beginning, it was obvious that the ways of Jesus were going to be out of step. In other words, incongruous with everything that was expected by the world. These incongruities became the catalyst, though, for the shepherd's completely new role in the plan of God. This is the third incongruous feature of this story. 33 years later, there would be some witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, some people who would be outside the tomb and would be the first ones to see Jesus the first ones told to go and tell somebody else that Jesus was raised. And do you remember who those people were? They were women. The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Women who, according to the law of the land, couldn't even testify in a court of law because they didn't have any standing. They didn't have the kind of respect and dignity that men had. And yet, they're the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So the shepherds in those fields outside of Bethlehem, shepherds who were ceremonially unclean, who... Uh, were not properly ordained to do any of this spiritual stuff. They became the first witnesses to the birth story, the nativity story of Jesus, spreading that word far and wide. Just as a thousand years earlier, David had been called out of these very same pastures to be anointed the second king of Israel, so these shepherds were sent from these pastures to proclaim the King of kings and Lord of lords. The conversation the angels had with the shepherds is one in which God commissions them to be what? Be witnesses. According to Wikipedia, the first flash mob was organized in Manhattan in, on uh, June 17, 2003, so just uh, 18 years ago. It was organized by the senior editor of Harper's Magazine, and it occurred in Macy's department store. The first flash mob, and now if you go on YouTube, there's all kinds of flash mobs showing up every place, doing all kinds of things. But I would suggest to you that the real first flash mob ever took place outside of Bethlehem two years ago, or 2,000 years ago, and it was made up of a whole bunch of angels. The, the second flash mob was a group of shepherds, roving flash mobs of witnesses to the birth of the Messiah. But what does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to tell the story of Jesus? The discipline of witness can be defined as living in the presence of Christ in a way the world finds compelling and desirable. You get that? To be a witness is to live in the presence of Christ in a way the world finds compelling and desirable. That's what those shepherds were doing. They were living in the 
infant presence of Christ in a way that the world finds compelling and desirable. It says in the story that as they shared the story, the people were in awe of the story that they had to tell. One of my favorite witnessing flash mobs took place at noon on a Saturday, November 13th in the year 2010. The flash mob was made up of the 80-voice chorus of Niagara from Niagara Falls, Ontario. And they met that day, that Saturday at noon, in a food court in the Seaway Mall. And they performed the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Let's listen in.
don't you love that? And the part that I love most about that is the incongruity of what's going on there. You've got these ordinary people dressed in ordinary clothing singing this inspired holy music with Arby's and A&W and Combo A and little kids and packages and all of that going on at the, the same time. It's this concert of glorious sacred movie, uh, music in an ordinary food court in a shopping mall. And I suspect that that's not so different from the incongruity between the angelic choir outside of Bethlehem and the smelly shepherds and the bleeding sheep in the pastures around them. God's preferred means of witness seems to be to pronounce his glorious beauty in the midst of our ordinary, marred, sinful lives in our sinful world. Another definition of witness that I really love is leaving others with the fragrance of Christ wherever I go. Can you smell that? Leaving others with the fragrance of Christ wherever I go. Pastor Brian Zond is a pastor of a church out in the Midwest, and he wrote a book that I'm currently reading called Beauty Will Save the World. He says, instead of angry protesters shaking our fists at a secular culture, we should be joyful singers transforming the secular with the sacred. Instead of isolating ourselves within the four walls of our holy clubs, we are to transform malls and food courts into cathedrals by our beautiful song. If the church of the 21st century will lay down its anger and frustration and instead joyfully sing the melody of Christ in the malls of meaninglessness, we can perhaps once again astonish a weary world with the beauty of the gospel. Does that inspire you? The thought that we might perhaps once again astonish a weary world with the beauty of the gospel. Incongruity is the defining word of the nativity story. Incongruity is the defining word of our lives as well. May our lifestyles as followers of Christ be incongruous with the principles and the priorities and the patterns of the world around us. Only this will make our witness compelling. So the call of God through these angels to our lives is to be the beauty of Jesus. Amen? It's compelling. It's, it's the kind of thing that gets people's attentions when you love people in a world that doesn't know what love is. It makes people stop and gasp, perhaps, when they, say, they, say they see you do something completely out of character with the world around us. You return good for evil. You love those who hate you. People watch that and they say, that's beautiful. 
It may not make sense according to the principles of this world, but that's beautiful. That's making a difference in lives, ordinary lives like mine. Let's be the beauty of Jesus. One of many people's favorite parts of Christmas Eve service is this sharing of the light. We take this light from the Christ candle, a big pillar candle that is representative of the beauty of Christ, the love of God in Christ, the amazing grace and mercy of God that we see in the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus. And from that, we light a candle that represents our lives. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine in the shopping malls. Let it shine in the workplace. Let it shine in school. Let it shine in my neighborhood. Let it shine in the places and situations of my life where it's just ugly and mean and dangerous. But I'm going to let my light shine. Amen. That's what those angels called those stinky shepherds to do. <laughs> Go tell people about what you've seen, this incongruous King of kings laid in a manger. Go tell people that the kingdom is being turned upside down. 